Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Jara, and thanks for tuning in. Today with me, I have Sarah. Hello. And I also have Sue. Heidi ho neighborinos. And we are returning to our Star Trek book club. And before we get into our main topic, which is the infamous novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture by the one and only Gene Roddenberry, we have a little bit of housekeeping to do first. First of all, a just mega, mega thanks to our patrons on Patreon who make this show possible. If you would like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and you get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch along commentaries and other things that we are planning that are in the works and are very exciting. So stay tuned. But no exaggeration to say that this this really is what keeps our show going, uh, pays for our, our hosting, for equipment, general, uh, you know, uh, we produce things to give out at, at conventions, spread the word, things like that. So thank you so much for everyone who supports our show. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we also have a tea public store with new designs based on our new banner art, plus logos and some other non-podcast specific Trek designs. And you can find that at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-Public.com slash stores slash women at warp. On we go to the main topic of the book club, which is the 1979 novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture, the only Star Trek novel to be written by Gene Roddenberry, and was also the first Star Trek novel published by Pocket Books, though Bantam held the rights to publish original Trek fiction at the time, and Pocket wouldn't publish its first original novel until 1981. So remember that for your next Star Trek trivia night. It caused a big stir. Did it? Yeah. I mean, as much as a book can in the publishing world, I guess. And was it just because of the publishing or was it because this book is extremely horny? No, I I think it just the fact that, I mean, Pocket is a division of Simon & Schuster, um, which Trek fiction is still being published under right now. But it was sort of like... You're probably not surprised to hear, but my well, from what I gather, is that Roddenberry sort of went around the contract with Bantam Books in order to get this work published the way he wanted it to be. Mm, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Sounds on brand, right? I think it's uh, maybe worth mentioning before we get into it that so if if the, you're new to one of our, our book club episodes, um, we we will obviously be spoiling the book. <laughs> Whether or not you this is a concern, I think we can debate because not all of us agree whether it's worth any taking any of your time to read it. But I think it's definitely worth your time listening to us make fun of it. (laughs) We do have a book club on Goodreads. So if you go to goodreads.com and you search under community uh, for women at warp under the book clubs, then you can find us and join in and we post some like discussion questions a couple, usually a couple months before we get to the actual recording so that you can feed in with your thoughts. So yeah, had either of you heard of this book before you started reading it? Or did you have any ideas of what to expect? I feel like Sue, you had heard of the infamous footnote. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of the whole thing is is infamous. (laughs) The discussion that I heard the most often, right, is that this was gay panic Star Trek, right? <laughs> this was the the creator seeing that fans decided that Kirk and Spock were a couple 
and sort of being bothered by that and trying to dispel those rumors, only to have that immensely backfire. <laughs> Do you think we should read this infamous footnote? Oh, please. I think you should, Jera. Okay. I'm, I'm finding it. I should mention that the book actually starts off with a preface by Admiral Kirk, basically saying, like, I let Gene Roddenberry write the story for me. And literally, the second sentence is like, it's about how he got his name. And it goes, I received James because it was both the name of my father's beloved brother, as well as that of my mother's first love instructor. And I originally started trying to read this book in French. And kept having to ask someone with an English copy to, like, compare it, because I just thought I was reading things wrong. Like, that sentence, which in French uh, actually says, like, my mother's first sexual instructor. And uh, no, that is literally what it says. So cool that in the future, it's like, hey, we're having a son, baby. I feel like we should pick the name James, because that's the guy who first got me off. (laughs) You know, it's funny, because I actually have this book in Italian, I got it when they were selling off Jean's library at STLV a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And my plan was to have that and then get the English copy and then compare them and use it to study Italian, which I've taken a couple times. But having read the English version now, I don't care to subject myself to this <laughs> ever again. <laughs> I think my favorite part of the introduction is that it, it in Kirk's voice saying that the, quote, journalist writing the book is has the correct version. Mm-hmm. And he says something like, no matter what you may have seen or read elsewhere in any other depiction, this is how it really happened. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like Gene being mad at the movie and the <laughs> lack of control he had over it. Even though, like, it's not super far off, the movie. It just has a lot more buildup. Like, I, I mean, the movie is also kind of slow, but yeah. there's – and also a lot more, like, basically it's like the movie plus Kirk always thinking that Everything is a metaphor for having sex with someone. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, the footnote on page 22, if if you're looking at the English pocketbook version. Editor's note. The human concept of friend is most nearly duplicated in Vulcan thought by the term tahila. I think we agreed that's sort of how you maybe pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Which can also mean brother and lover. Spock's recollection from which this chapter has drawn is that It was a most difficult moment for him, since he did indeed consider Kirk to have been his brother. However, because Tahila can be used to mean lover, and since Kirk and Spock's friendship was unusually close, this has led to some speculation over whether they had actually indeed become lovers. At our request, Admiral Kirk supplied the following comment on this subject. I was never aware of this lover's rumor, although I have been told that Spock encountered it several times. Apparently, he had always dismissed it with his characteristic lifting of his right eyebrow, which usually connoted some combination of surprise, disbelief, and or annoyance. As for myself, although I have no moral or other objections to physical love in any of its many earthly alien and mixed forms, I have always found my best gratification in that creature, woman. Also, I would dislike being thought of as so foolish that I would select a love partner who came into sexual heat only once every seven years. <laughs> so that's that's the thing. Thoughts? <laughs> uh, like, having read the whole book, I actually think it kind of undermines it because it's so clear how, like, connected 
Kirk and Spock are for the whole rest of the book. Oh, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying in that it totally, totally backfires. Like, he's trying to dispel these rumors and is doing the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a lot of this book is just trying so hard to be sexy that it's having the opposite effect. Uh, Yes. (laughs) It's very, I would say, like, if the positive framing would be, it's very sex positive. Like, for the time, this whole, like, it's very, it kind of speaks to, like, you know, sexual liberation movement kind of Mm -hmm. idea, like that, you know, we all just talk more openly about sex. And that is uh, an expression of, like, human enlightenment. Except for that, like, he's obviously not very good at, like, thinking about it from anyone's perspective other than a straight man. Yeah, it's all about men being sexually gratified yeah. and women being sexual objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think in in his brain, he thinks, like, they're enjoying themselves. But, like, he doesn't actually confirm that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like women don't have sex drives except for the sexy alien woman. Yes. But even then, it's only to entice the men around her. Yeah. But I I mean, everyone has spoken about how Kirk is an author surrogate character, right? Mm-hmm. And Roddenberry sees himself as Kirk. And as he got older, Roddenberry saw himself as Picard, right? Mm-hmm. These are established in, in fanon, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it makes it, I don't know, extra creepy. <laughs> to see Roddenberry <laughs> writing about Kirk's inner thoughts this way, and the the constant like obsession with what he's going to have sex with next. There's even towards the end when you know Decker is like going to to merge with V'ger. He's like, well, maybe I'm better at, at sex than Decker too. Yeah, <laughs> like do. You- why? Stop. I have more experience. Yeah, it's almost like too much information about Gene Roddenberry's psyche. <laughs> I feel like the most, maybe the most cringy one for me, and I think we had a listener who brought this up as well. We had a comment from Ruth about Kirk's partner in the very beginning, who's Lori, who is this like vice admiral or something, and she gets she ends up getting killed in a transporter accident. And Ruth is like, I found the bit about Kirk's partner in the very beginning to be troubling. It felt like, what's in it for her? What does she get out of the relationship as a woman? Is she fulfilled? Does she experience pleasure in the sexual relationship? Are her needs in companionship met? It doesn't feel mutual to me. Oh, and that whole thing, he thinks that Nagura used her as like a manipulation piece, right? Yeah, and it's like never even questioned. It's basically just like, yes, 100%, this vice admiral was, like, set up by the Admiral to, like, seduce me into staying on Earth. But that's okay, because the sex was great. The horror comment was really charming. Oh, yeah. Page 36, about two-thirds the way down. Your next words could brand you a whore, Lori. Nogura's staff whore. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Even, like, the first time you see you have her described, it's, like, her unusually large eyes and the slim youthful angularity in her arms and legs always reminded him of a fawn's wild grace and innocence, and he marveled again at how much this contrasted with her real wildness, which was anything but fawn-like, but much more exciting and satisfying. Yeah. It's like we're 32 pages in, and he's already feeling, quote, the slight pressure of his genitals responding to those (laughs) memories. She had been perfection, lover, friend, wife, mother, and in every other role and joy she supplied. That's so gross. Yeah, I know. I was like, okay, no woman is all those things. Also, that's gross that that is kind of the idea of perfection. It's gross in many ways. <laughs> so 
Valid, Ruth. Although Ruth did add, I enjoyed the rest of the novel very much and found that it deepened my love and appreciation for the film. I mean, I appreciated that parts of it went by a lot faster than the film. (laughs) (laughs) Also agreed. But yeah, like I actually got, I found like, like I was post-it noting like all of those references. And then by about halfway through, I'm just like, yeah, I feel like we have enough examples of there's parts where it talks about like Kirk talking about you know, seeing the Enterprise and, you know, we all know that scene from the motion picture where you see the Enterprise in space dock and how beautiful that is. And Kirk is like basically thinking about like it being like possessing, like or, like having a woman underneath him who's ready to, for him to possess her. Ugh. Yeah. Like that's an environment I really don't want to work in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That is, you know, I feel like the idea was you know, in theory, this idea of like, you know, everyone just being super open about their sexuality all the time is awesome. But like in like this book kind of shows it's really just dudes and really just the dudes at the top. Mm. I mean, those are also the only perspectives that we get, right? We never get inside Uhura's head. Yeah, we do get a little bit of chapel and a little bit of Uhura, actually. I see a part, like, there's, like, two paragraphs where they're talking about Kirk wanting the Enterprise back. And it's, like, actually, this is pretty much what I was referring to. Uhura nodded. This was exactly what she had just felt in Kirk, too. He had also had that look which comes into some men's eyes when they've just won a woman and she lies there ready to be taken. Uhura was not unacquainted with that look, but she was troubled at the amount of hunger she had seen there, too. Yeah, but yeah, it would not pass the Bechdel test. (laughs) (laughs) It really annoyed me how Chapel is the doctor when the book starts, and McCoy comes in and takes over as a chief medical officer, and then refers to her as nurse for the rest of the book. Yeah, and that's like that's part is in the movie too. At first, where he's basically like annoyed that he wanted a nurse and Chapel's a doctor now. I feel like I thought it was going to like. To, to wrap up that weird dynamic a little bit quicker, because it at the beginning, they, they give you McCoy's perspective. He's like, oh, I'm impressed that she has these, these files ready and has this analysis done. But then throughout, he continues to call her nurse and even says, you're beginning to sound like a doctor, nurse. Yeah. Mm, no, not here for it. I mean, you kind of expect, like, McCoy to be retrograde in his attitudes. But yeah, like, I think the best you can say is that he comes around to kind of a grudging respect near the end. And even then, like, it's, I think it even says that she's kind of relieved that he's there. That, like, she doesn't, of course, she would just, like, take a step back. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could probably talk more about the sexy times in this book, and maybe we can talk about Decker and Ilya in a bit, but let's maybe take a break from from that and talk about some of the other just, like, weird concepts and pieces that... One of the things that I think makes this book, I would argue, worth a read is that there's a lot of people who have this idea about, like, quote-unquote, Gene's vision and, like, what Gene's vision of Star Trek was and that if Star Trek only stuck to Gene's vision, it would be better. And obviously, we all owe a tremendous debt to what was in Gene's vision, although, like, obviously was shaped by many other people. And I think this book really shows the fact that, like, everyone benefits from collaborators and editors. 
because there is a lot in there that's super interesting. And then there's a lot that you c- you're you just like, that's bananas. <laughs> yeah, that is if, if you want like Jean's vision with no influence and no editors, that's this book. Yeah. And that's the only place you're going to get that is this book. Yeah. And I don't think I mean, I, I don't know if I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it that I don't think we'd be talking about this franchise 50 plus years later if it were strictly Jean's vision all the time. Yeah. And like, I think that also like anyone, ideas change over time. And so it's also just a moment in time. But I think that, you know, it doesn't really serve any of us well to say that, like, to be kind of purists about this or this or this is part of the vision and therefore nothing can ever change. But so one of the examples is there's a bunch of kind of weird technologies that Jean proposes in the book, which I'm actually, I'd have to admit, I don't remember to what extent these overlap with the movie. But one of the ideas is that everyone has, all the commanded officers have a communicator in their heads that signal them mentally in case of emergency. So like Kirk at the beginning is just like hanging out in the Mediterranean and basically is felled by a traumatic vision that's beamed into his head to tell him that there's been this attack on these Klingon ships by this energy cloud thing. How does this seem like a good idea to you? (laughs) This seems like a terrible idea. Like, what if you're in the middle of something, like, I don't know, speed racing or something? (laughs) (laughs) They just start beaming random images into your head. Yeah, I think this is what happens when someone who doesn't have, like, a huge science background is suddenly trying to write hard (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah, and, like, why wouldn't they just beam a thing into your head saying, hey, there's something super important and we need you to call us? Like, why would you beam in the thing that is literally going to make someone pass out? But can't you also send that to their communicator? Yeah, I guess the idea (laughs) is that someone might want to get off the grid and you need to be able to contact them at all times. But surely to gosh, there's like, you know, the, the horrible like emergency alert thing that people can send to your phones that makes your phone make noise even if it's on silent. Yeah, the sensever seems like it would be a very dangerous idea Mm -hmm. and then you know there's the issue that the book itself brings up which is what if starfleet decided to use it for mind control (laughs) yeah i mean is a consideration (laughs) yeah i a hundred percent like as much as i would love to imagine being in starfleet i cannot imagine any job that i would willingly let someone put a thing in my head that would beam urgent messages into my brain at any given time (laughs) yeah i i think we can all say it's a pass on that one (laughs) yeah so that's not in the movie to my recollection no that whole opening business is not in the film at all okay good because part of the other part of that scene this was just a line that i thought was interesting is that kirk has this like sort of meditation on the like geoengineering that's been applied to the Mediterranean Sea and is now just like a small lake. And 
Kirk finds himself basically pondering whether humans have the right to meddle with the planet like this and concludes an unequivocal yes. Yeah. Basically that it was like for, I think for like electricity and that it maybe recovered like the Library of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And so for, because those things were progress, like we 100% had the right to do that, which mostly just struck me as like maybe just something that would not hold up super well today was maybe an idea that was okay in 1979, but interesting. I don't know. How do you think uh, did that land with you at all? Yeah, that was surprising yeah. to me to to just see it put that way. Like, I don't, I don't think I would feel that way. I don't know. I think it would be interesting to recover more land for one thing and then have all those archaeological sites they talked about. I think there would be a lot of benefits to it. Yeah, I think that there's like room to have a discussion about those types of things. But I feel like, you know, it it was a bit of a symptom of its time that if you were going to raise a proposition like that today, there would be a lot more discussions about like who benefits and who loses out and what the environmental consequences would be that I just don't think the the discussion was there in 1979. Yeah, it feels very much like, of course, we have the right to destroy the Mediterranean Sea because it gave us these other things. And I feel like if we had that conversation for real, there would be a lot more nuance in it. Yeah, it would be like, oh, who, you know, there are these, you know, people whose ancestral nomadic lifestyle would be disrupted, or these, you know, this fishery would be disrupted, or like those types of things. And maybe it would be totally justified and just awesome. But but yeah, I mean, it is an example of like, clearly, Gene Roddenberry had this like, very vivid sci-fi imagination. And I I do kind of like where it goes sometimes. It just maybe would be a more complicated discussion today. I feel like that would be a really good thing for an episode of TNG for Picard to discuss. Yes. Mm. Okay, so another thing that they talk about is that basically all of the like the, you know, the pajama uniforms with their belts yeah. are constantly scanning everyone's vital signs and they report continuously to the CMO, but only the CMO can can view that data. Wasn't the implication also that they don't know what's happening? Um, I wasn't 100% clear on that. I didn't catch that. But I did catch that they were really worried about privacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could just be making that part up because the Sunceiver was a secret. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. But they basically, I mean, they, they, they're they concerned about privacy in that the stuff can only go to the CMO. It still seems to me like they are using a lot of data that has like, it feels sort of like using a lie detector test. That like, we know that people react different ways to things. But this idea that like, your doctor could at any point like tune into your Fitbit and be like, hey, your resting heart rate's up. I don't know if you're fit for command. <laughs> well, I think what it reminded me of is actually the scene in Apollo 13, where the astronauts like rip off their their sensors. Right? Oh, yeah. Mission control is tracking their heart mm-hmm. rate and their whatever else. I don't even know. Mm-hmm. But You'd think if we're getting to the point that humans are working and living in space that we would deem that not necessary anymore? Mm-hmm. Maybe? Yeah, or, I mean, it's interesting, and that actually is an, that's an interesting comparison, because maybe it's like, maybe that's kind of thing is where Gene Roddenberry was getting ideas from, the idea that, you know, you would want, these are your, like, prized people that you're sending on these missions, and you'd want to keep track of their physical and mental state. I do think that maybe 
I mean, I feel like if if this was happening in like the next generation, that there would probably be something that you could like have the internal scanners scan someone mm-hmm. at, like as a one-off thing if you were worried about them versus having like someone's vitals constantly transmitting. But then again, as I draw the connection to a fitness tracker, clearly a lot of us are giving away like vital sign data all the time. <laughs> But we do actually see them do that in an episode of Next Gen. In Remember Me, mm-hmm. Crusher has the computer continually monitor Picard's vitals right before right. he disappears. Mm-hmm. So I guess the internal sensors can do that if you ask mm-hmm. them to, or are doing that, rather. I guess maybe that makes more sense. And I feel like maybe that, even though it's still debatable, I guess I would probably feel more comfortable with it than just wearing it on my belt all the time. It somehow feels less invasive, even if it's doing the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what I found interesting talking about the medical stuff is that the emphasis that this book placed on mental health, Mm. and of course, it's not really called that, but McCoy and Chapel are constantly talking about how Kirk benefits mentally and even emotionally by being in the captain's chair, by being on the starship, and how not having that job was actively harming him. Mm-hmm. I mean, the language they use to talk about it is a little bit extreme to me, <laughs> but I do think it's interesting recognizing, you know, even in 1979, that not everybody is cut out for a desk job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're right, they do have a, a focus on that. And yeah, I do feel like there's the book is, is I would say, attentive to feelings, generally, mm. including male feelings, which is nice. <laughs> like you definitely have I mean, even though it's a lot of sexual metaphors, you know, Kirk is thinking a lot about how he's feeling and like introspecting on whether these feelings are like for everyone's good or not. And then you have other people thinking about how he's feeling how Decker is feeling how like they empathize with Decker and what it's like going through the situation with Ilya. So yeah, that's kind of interesting. And Spock's whole through line is about learning mm-hmm. how to handle his emotions and what his yeah. relationship to them is. Yeah, definitely. So should we talk about the Decker Ilya stuff, which to me feels very similar to the movie. So I didn't find it like the most interesting part of the book, although I don't remember it explicitly talking about her breasts in the movie. <laughs> she turned her breasts to point at him. <laughs> like, I feel like they're like headlights. <laughs> so I was confused for most of, most of the book because the book mentions early on that men don't survive sex with Deltons. Mm-hmm. Or humans don't survive sex with Deltons. But it doesn't say why until like 200 pages in that the you just go mad. So I, for most of the book, thought there was some kind of like praying mantis situation going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's, that's something they could have clarified right in the beginning and they wouldn't have lost any impact. Just both options are so ridiculous. <laughs> I do feel like... Ilea is very much like a disposable object mm. that we see this. We've talked about this in episodes like oh, in our episode on Wolf of the Fold, too, that when women 
in the original series died, it was very shrugged off and like everyone's concern is much more with the men. And the there's even like a part where it says Kirk saw an appreciative gleam in Spock's eyes. Decker was a hell of a fine captain. He had deserved a ship of his own. It was a pity about him and the Dalton woman too. Like she doesn't have a name, you know, because she you she was like not you know as ambitious as him and she's like i don't know it was just that was an unfortunate like you all know her name this is 230 pages in it's almost the end of the book well it also implies that she's only in starfleet and in space because she like bonded herself to decker because he gave her a headband (laughs) and then he left Uh, this is what women want so headbands (laughs) sparkly headbands I mean, I would take a sparkly headband. <laughs> Going back to the, like, emotions uh, thing, the I think one of the, like, biggest Kirk-Spock scenes is when Kirk is, like, rescued after mind-melding with V'ger. And he's, you know, he starts laughing. He's having this, he's basically tripping. He's going like, wow, this is, this is so amazing. And like, V'ger was everything that Spock had ever dreamed of becoming, and yet V'ger was barren. It would never feel pain or joy or challenge. And then, like, it's laughing, and he, but then he sort of wakes up and he sees Kirk, and he reached out weakly and found Kirk's arm, then his hand, and took a startled Kirk's hand in his own. Jim, Spock said. McCoy looked his astonishment at the visible and unashamed emotion on Spock's face as he clutched Kirk's hand. And it's like, yes. Just forget that whole footnote earlier on. <laughs> they love each other. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't, there's not more to say. Well, and that thing with like Ilya's breasts pointing at them. <laughs> it's like he had just realized that the pointing of those two breasts toward himself had simply meant she was turning to look toward them. <laughs> like, he's like, oh, her breasts are pointing at me. Oh, shit, that means her eyes are pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> but then he says the Ives, they seemed devoid of living warmth. Was this somehow Ilya's dead body? A corpse reanimated and controlled by the aliens? So it's very, like, body horror, kind of. But weird. still super hot. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. So gross. I mean, and also that he had to add a nude scene in, into the book that wasn't in the movie. Mm-hmm. What was the end scene? The nude no, A scene. nude scene. Oh, yes. Yes. Definitely. Well, I mean, that is the the fact that that wasn't in the movie is the part that the preface, I think, was telling us to ignore. Be like, ignore the fact that she wasn't fully naked in the movie. (laughs) This is what really happened. As an ace person reading this book, I have, like, no personal context for how much Kirk, as an allosexual person, thinks about sex. Yeah. Please assure me that this is an abnormal amount. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a straight guy. And I have gone like fully several months without thinking much about sex in my history. I feel like I've been told that high school, like, straight allosexual boys think about sex with women a lot. But... This does seem like an unusual amount, especially given that the galaxy is at stake. There are times where this book feels like it was written by a, like, 13-year-old boy who has read a lot of books. Yeah. 
Yeah, that seems about right. Just every now and then I read stuff like this and like it makes me understand but also wonder like how much time are people wasting thinking about sex? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably a lot. Probably a lot. And like, you know, everyone has different, you know, people who like sex and like thinking about sex have also different degrees of how often and how much you think about it. Right. And it's not always wasting time. I understand that. It's just sometimes shocking to me that like, oh, right, this is a part of life that preoccupies a lot of people. <laughs> well, it's like every five pages in this book. And it's a short book. But there's a lot of it. And like I said, the galaxy is at stake. So I do feel like most people are not in their most intense work moments also thinking about sex. That is an excellent point. Yeah. I mean, there are Delton pheromones at play here, which is super gross. The fact that they actually are like very clear that the sort of reproduced body also identically reproduces her pheromones. One of the things I found interesting was in the introduction where Gene Roddenberry talks about how, or Admiral Kirk talks about how Starfleet types are actually more conservative and individualistic than what he calls new humans. And you sort of get, it, you sort of lose it as it moves into more of the plot of the movie. But in the introduction, you have this idea that there's these quote unquote new humans that are maybe kind of more like hippie communal types. And that the Starfleet types are more conservative and, like, believe more in tradition and they're more individualistic, which is why they actually fare better in space, even though they're not as enlightened. Yeah, I wanted to know more about this, actually, Mm -hmm. because it's – I feel like it's not clearly described, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah, Kirk gives the example that, like, he has a last name. Because his family followed the patriarchal tradition of handing down the father's last name, right? Which is unlike what the new humans do. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the implication is that they, they are like a, a commune almost, that they don't have last names, that they – almost that they don't have any sort of individual drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he talks about – I am prepared to accept the possibility that these so-called new humans represent a more highly evolved breed capable of finding rewards in group consciousness that we more primitive individuals will never know. So is, is he talking about like ESP, like that, that like more evolved humans are developing like a literal group consciousness or that they're just more communal? I was not sure. I feel like it could be either. (laughs) But then he says that these uh, intelligent and flexible minds were sent out by Starfleet and couldn't help but be seduced by higher philosophies and aspirations of aliens that they were encountering, which I don't know why that would be a bad thing, but apparently it was. So maybe seduced away from Starfleet so that they left. Yeah, I guess. And then he says his academy class was the first group selected by Starfleet on the basis of somewhat more limited intellectual agility. But then the editor is like, he's just being modest. (laughs) I feel like a lot of these ideas he's throwing out in the book one after another are ideas he had for episodes after the show was canceled, so he couldn't make them. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. these would make a good one-hour TV episode just exploring this idea. Yeah. I mean, he also kind of has this meta commentary at the, the end of the introduction that 
feels very much just like, here's a thing I wanted to say about Star Trek, that he talks about looking upon the Enterprise and its crew as my own private view of Earth and humanity and microcosm. And there may still be long and awkward years for humanity between now and maturity, but we have at least come within some reach of understanding that our future can hold any new dimensions of challenge and happiness that we may desire and deserve. And, you know, keeps going about how, you know, we need to have love in order to have truth. And this is about hope for the future for humanity. So, yeah, it does feel like kind of a bit of a cross between an introduction on the book and just like an essay on Star Trek, which I'm not totally opposed to. (laughs) It's just some of the stuff is interesting. And like, yeah, I did kind of want to know more, especially this idea that, you know, humanity's kind of split into different camps and that there are like people that are too smart for Starfleet, because I feel like that does not jive with what we see later in like TNG, especially where it's like, when you look at the stuff Wesley has to do to get into the Academy. Hmm. I feel like it's sort of related to the the space seed storyline right but also in a way related to the wesley story you know how he's the next step of human evolution when he becomes a traveler Mm -hmm. oh yeah that makes sense so maybe maybe that's where that wound up i mean there's no doubt that roddenberry had a ton of ideas and it seems like most of them were just thrown at the wall in this book Yeah, I think it also has to do with a little bit of, um, you know, some of the influences, not just with like, you know, the wagon train to the stars kind of like pioneering spirit, but also the the swashbuckler characters, those other how those other characters influenced GR that, you know, he's he's talking about individualism. And maybe, you know, given where things were at in like 1979, and how they evolved from when he was working on the original series feeling like he somehow had to speak to the value of those individualistic traits at a time when society uh, or like the people in his in his sphere and with similar philosophies were embracing kind of more collective views. Hmm. We will never know. Ah. So I feel like a couple other maybe like little scenes to draw attention to is I we have transporter chief Janice Rand, who kills Kirk's ex-girlfriend. Oh my gosh. Give her a promotion and the first thing she does is majorly, well, she doesn't mess it up, but she feels like she messed it up. Yeah, I felt so bad. It's it's not her fault, but the first thing that happens is two people die on her transporter platform. Mm-hmm. Die horribly. I would never touch a transporter ever again. Right? Yeah. It's like literally Galaxy Quest. And it's just, yeah, exactly. It's like when they beam, <laughs> ben, they beam the thing and it's like, it was it's inside out and also exploded. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Terrible. Oh, why was it necessary? <laughs> Sorry. And can you imagine getting the the message enterprise what we got back didn't live long fortunately. Ugh. Like uh you just don't want to be the relatives that hear what people said there. And then basically it's like there was nothing you could have done Rand it wasn't your fault. Then he turned and left the transporter room. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, he's always been, like, so, so empathetic to his subordinates. Yeah, so I feel like that kind of covers most of the, like, you know, our 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 normal women, uh, members of the crew. Uhura shows up in a few scenes. 
interesting, interesting scene on page 79, where Uhura is reacting to Ilea being a Delton, and Kirk is sort of suggesting that Uhura might be biased. And then he goes, like, Kirk realized there was a suggestion of reproof in his voice, and he immediately regretted it. Uhura was the last person who needed instruction in diversity from him. And I'm like, that is the most self-aware thing Kirk has ever thought. (laughs) Can you imagine if, like, everyone was like, yeah, actually, I don't need to mansplain diversity to a Black woman. (laughs) But in that same introduction scene, he, I don't know if I'm I'm reading into this, but they they have Sulu not react to learning that their new navigator is Delton. Right. And then, like, make jokes about, like, oh, he'll find out soon enough. And, like, is that, <laughs> like, a dig at George Takei for being gay? Or am I reading too much into that? <sighs> I'm just, like, looking at that again. I don't know. That might be... It's hard to say because we're not in his head. Right. I feel like it also, you could also potentially read it as like, yeah, I don't know. I think it just, they just wanted like there to be someone who was going to be caught by surprise. Which is fine. Yeah. It just, it struck me as like, it's interesting to pick that character. Yes. For for it to be that one. And then he does react to, to Ilya after she comes on board. But then when she's she's replaced by DeFalco, I think it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. Kirk's internal monologue is, oh, yeah, there might be something about her worth remembering. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, There's definitely a lot of competent women on the ship. And I feel like this was as far as he could go to recognize them. Like, he's, we talked a bit about the chapel thing before, but, you know, she... Uh, I did like that there's things about basically, like, if McCoy's going to test me, he'll find out I'm really well prepared. And, but it still feels like the the recognition in a lot of these cases at the end of the day is kind of grudging. Like, oh, it's very cool that Janice Rand is a transporter chief now. Oh, shit, she probably killed someone. Moving on. And then, like, Chapel's a doctor. She's totally prepared. Um, And then you have these kind of, like, backhanded compliments. Now you're thinking like a doctor. Yeah. Even Uhura, it doesn't recognize that the that Viger is trying to contact them. Spock has to tell her. Mm-hmm. This is why I don't read a lot of older science fiction, <laughs> because a lot of older science fiction is like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, that's uh, so. That's pretty much the uh, motion picture novelization. Any like other scenes that you had noted that we didn't cover, or you know, hilarious quotes. I have so many post-it notes. I know, me too. <laughs> I will say that, like, overall, I found the book, like, I would say, well, there were definitely some cringe moments. I didn't find it, like, hard to read. Like, it's a pretty light book, and he's good at describing visuals. So, you know, some of the dis- descriptions of, like, some of the things that were visually impressive in the movie, I think, still kind of carried over into the book. and is not, like, he's not bad at writing action. Like, he's clearly can put together a novel and, and like, can put together a story. It There's just a lot of cringy sex stuff. It had pleased her immensely to both heal and pleasure him, so. <laughs> is that Ilea, or? That is, um, Lori. Oh, 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was like, that could be any woman in this book. (laughs) That's certainly what pleases me. (laughs) Show me a man I can heal in pleasure. (laughs) I appreciate that this book is printed in a large font, so it's not as long as it appears from the outside. Exactly. (laughs) I found it a fast read. It took me like three baths to read it. (laughs) I only read books in the bath that I'm not overly concerned about dropping in the bath. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if it's just, you know, this year, but I definitely had a hard time focusing on this when I was reading it. Mm -hmm. Same. And I think it's a little bit how my brain is right now, but I think it's also the writing style. And it occurred to me that I think Roddenberry writes prose like he speaks. Ah. Not necessarily the dialogue of the other characters, but Mm -hmm. like it's a little bit flowery and like the sentences are just a smidge too long and they kind of double back on themselves a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where my brain wasn't always following, if that makes any sense at all. Yep. That totally does. And actually, even like that footnote where they have the thoughts from Admiral Kirk on on whether or not he's Spock's lover, it struck me reading that out loud that that doesn't sound at all like Captain Kirk talks. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's very flowery, and the sentences are very long. And as we all know from all the impressions of William Shatner, that he doesn't talk like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's it, it, it does strike me that there's maybe a bit of a you know, writing this as it's kind of almost more like a Star Trek fantasy than it is a, you know, imagining the characters actually saying those lines and doing those things. Yeah. Just flipping through my copy here, I think we hit just about everything I I post-it noted, except for the the one bit that I feel anyway directly contradicts that infamous footnote, mm-hmm. which is, is Kirk musing on his relationship with with Spock, his friendship and affection for Spock. Theirs had been the touching of two minds which the old poets of Spock's home planet had proclaimed as superior even to the wild physical love which affected Vulcans every seventh year during Ponfar. Yeah, so it's interesting for sure. I feel like it's a a snapshot into a a period of time in Gene Roddenberry's ideation of Star Trek. And you can see which parts like, you know, stuck around and which parts didn't and which parts were probably, you know, finessed and and edited and brought in by other people that were key in the original series and the movies and probably, you know, helped uh, shape more of where things ended up. So are we going to rate this book? yeah let's do it let's talk about where this falls Mm -hmm. my rating is question mark Mm -hmm. right (laughs) because here's the thing it's not it's not a great book it's it's point blank it's not good Mm -hmm. but it is amusing (laughs) yes at least to me and i think do i think it's worthwhile to read it I think for amusement purposes, maybe, maybe skim it. I think also for the purposes of like what you were just saying, Jara, the snapshot of the idea of Star Trek at a particular point in time. So it's more, I, I think there's almost more value in it as a reference book 
mm-hmm. than there is as a novel. Yes. I feel like reading this book as a woman or someone who likes women as people, you really risk getting turned off to the original series entirely. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it a two out of 10 inappropriate references to women. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think I would definitely not suggest someone read this book before watching the movie or before watching any original series. Yeah, I don't think it's a good introduction to Star Trek. Yeah, I'm going to give it... Yeah, I mean, again, it's like it is hard to rate it because I I kind of... Uh, I think I'm on a similar page as Sue where I think it it has like kind of a good reference educational value. And also I found it amusing that I was just like, wow, this is bananas. So I will give it four out of ten bonding headbands (laughs) and you know i should have said something about this earlier there are times when in a novelization adding stuff enriches the original story (laughs) but then in this book he just throws in whatever he randomly thought of that morning and it it doesn't do anything yeah Uh I, i i agree i don't think it adds to the story i think it it more just kind of illuminates the differences between like his vision of what ended up on screen. So very fair. Don't know that the the movie really truly suffered for not having like Sensevers and uh, <laughs> Kirk wandering around uh, this uh, big hydro project. Anyway, so if you want to join in for our next book club discussion or to suggest a book that we should read. We do usually a couple of these a year. So you can uh, hop on over to Goodreads or you can always just send us suggestions to email at crewatwomenwarp.com. And um, yeah, we'll uh, wrap up there for today. Where can people find you on the internet? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And Sarah? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Miyoko, S-A-R-A-H, Emma's and Mary, I-Y-O-K-O. And you can find my fanzine, Star Trek Quarterly, on Facebook. Cool. And I'm Jarrah, and you can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. That's Jarrah Penguin. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. I mentioned it. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.